Radio Mano Papachango. Dr. Ryan. My name is Ricky. I just want to say thank you for producing the podcast, uh, writing your books, having interesting people on of all thoughts and walks of life. Um, you've really inspired me to live a more outgoing, free thought lifestyle. And um, because of you, I've started to write my own blog, um, started to write my own book, and you've just inspired me to travel. Um, right now, I'm sitting in Chaishang, Taiwan, which is a southern east, southeast coast of uh, Taiwan. And um, yeah, so more of the story is thank you and love you all. Hello, Chris. My name is Felix from Stuttgart, Germany. I work here in a hospital as a physician assistant like in the operation room. It's very interesting. And I just got out of the cold shower. After a Wim Hof breathing session, and it was very refreshing. Please keep on doing your podcast, Chris. I really enjoy it. I can't wait for new episodes to come out, so keep on doing it. Thank you. Hey, Chris. Uh, I took your advice and I bought my girlfriend a butt plug. It didn't go so well, but, um, you know, that's life. Uh, I really appreciate all of you done. Thank you. I accept neither blame nor credit for any of this. So I'm glad you're traveling and I'm glad you're doing your Wim Hof breathing and your cold showers. And uh, as far as your girlfriend and the butt plug, uh, I'm, yeah, I have nothing to do with that. I don't know your girlfriend, do I? And if so, I didn't, I didn't tell you to get her a butt plug. Uh, but if you're going to get a butt plug for someone, I think you really need to talk it over with them. But in that in that regard, and maybe only in that regard, butt plugs are like puppies. You don't just buy one willy-nilly and give it to somebody. There's a lot of responsibility there. Anyway, today's episode is with Kevin Allison, who is the creator and host of The Risk Podcast, which is one of my favorites. Let me read you something here. Um... Kevin Allison uh, is the founder and creator of the Risk Podcast, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Yeah, that's the idea of the podcast. It's not just a storytelling podcast. It's a storytelling podcast about things you would not necessarily want to share. Um, I was on the podcast. I told my story about the scorpion in Guatemala and that whole thing that happened. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It, it was really interesting because the way they do it, it's not just like me sitting here in front of this microphone telling you a story. They, Kevin's really good at drawing out the story and asking questions. And so they record your responses to his questions. It's, it's more of a conversation, really in which you tell the story and then they cut out all the fat and add some sound effects and uh, uh, it's really well done. Uh, in other words, it's 
you know, the best possible version of me telling that story or I guess anyone else telling stories. Other guests who have been on there, Janine Garofalo, Mark Marin, Aisha Taylor, Trevor Noah, Mar- Trevor Noah, Margaret Cho. Yeah, lots of people way more famous than me. And Rolling Stone named it one of its top podcasts. Kevin's a, a, an actor, a writer, uh, obviously a comedian. He's a really funny guy, really cool. And I very much enjoyed hanging out with him. Yesterday, I was in a place called Stonetown, uh, which is the only big town here on Zanzibar, which is off the coast of Tanzania. And uh, it's interesting. I, I, I feel a really good vibe from the people here. They're very friendly. Uh, they have a nice energy to them. Um, but, you know, there's... As in many parts of the world, there's a pretty significant economic disparity uh, between the locals and the people who travel here, which leads to a lot of people offering you their services everywhere you go or trying to sell you trinkets when you're walking down the beach or trying to get you to come into their shop or whatnot. And again, this happens all over the place. There are very few places I've traveled to where this isn't an issue. Um, and, but it always, it presents an interesting conundrum, right? Because, you know, you're walking around and all you want to do is just kind of walk around and have your experience. But every 10 steps, somebody's coming up to you and saying, hey, how are you? Where are you from? And you know, they don't give a shit where you're from. What they're doing is, trying to start a conversation that's going to lead to you buying something or hiring them to drive you around or, you know, something that's going to result in them getting paid somehow. And look, I don't begrudge people trying to make a living. Uh, I think we all can agree that people have a right to survive and feed their children and so on. The problem is that it is so overwhelming that it ruins the experience of walking around. So, you know, that's one reason I have no interest in going back to Morocco. Some friends have suggested we take a trip to Morocco. And I'm like, nah, I don't want to go to Morocco because it's just a constant hassle, at least when I was there. Maybe it's changed, but I've been there three times. And every time it was like you couldn't take 10 steps without dealing with somebody trying to get you to do something. And the difference between here and Morocco is I I feel like in Morocco, there was a a vibe of anger and aggression. And so, you know, there would be times when I would say, look, man, no, sorry, I don't want a carpet. I don't want to meet your cousin. I don't want, you know, I don't want anything. I'm sorry. I just want to be alone. And the reaction to that would be like, well, fuck you then. And like I say, I I get it, but that's not an energy I really want to be around. And um, but here, I don't feel that anger. I feel like okay, all right, you're not going to buy anything. Maybe tomorrow. There, there's a a resignation and a sort of underlying positivity and friendliness that that makes it better but it's still a fucking 
heartbreaker. And and when I say it's it's a bother, I don't mean it's a bother in the sense that they're bothering me. I mean it's a bother in the sense that it keeps forcing me into facing this question of why can't I give people what they're asking for over and over and over again? And and you get, you know, and very clever, like a guy came up to us yesterday and said, I know I'm probably the hundredth person who's come up to you today. And all I want is 30 seconds of your time and then I'll let you enjoy your day. And I, so how do you say no to that? OK, OK. So and then he's telling us, you know, this is the old town and this is where the fort is and this is where this is. And I'm like, OK, OK, I know. I know. Um, thank you. Uh, and then, of course, it leads into if you hire me as your guide, then other people won't bother you. So now it's a protection racket. And all right. So the point is not to just talk about the conundrum. The point is to show how travel broadens us in ways that we don't anticipate. Okay. I remember the first time that I was dealing with this. It was probably in in India. And the insight that I got that I'm reminded of now had nothing to do with India. Um, it had nothing to do with economics. I mean, I, I did get insights around India and economics and all that, of course. But the the thing I want to call attention to, the sort of unanticipated insight, is that I feel like for the first time in my life, I had some insight into what it was like to be a woman who is being hit on by men constantly and who is trying to preserve a sense of compassion and sympathy and friendliness and kindness, but is just overwhelmed by the number of guys who are bothering her. And how difficult that must be, how, how tiring, exhausting that must be. Because there's no right answer, right? I mean, if you're a hot woman walking down the street, you are, by definition, you have something that lots of people want, now, even if your sense is like, okay, well, what you think you want that I have, I don't really have, or it's not what you think it is, or, or whatever, whatever the woman's self-perception is, the fact is that those guys are coming up, hey, how are you? I'm friendly. I'm not like the other guys. I can protect you from the other guys. I can show you things you haven't seen before. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me. And after a while, you're like, will you just fucking leave me alone? Fuck. And and I know women who are who are working very hard to not feel hostility toward men because it isn't the men's fault. It's the nature of the situation. And I guess my point is that we need to always be aware of the fact that situations sometimes put us into conflict with one another when the conflict isn't really between us. A lot of these young men who 
get a fucking gun in America and shoot a bunch of people are sexually frustrated, alienated, threatened, emasculated. And a lot of them have a lot of hostility toward women. A lot of serial killers are killing women, killing prostitutes, killing homeless girls. It's the amount of violence against violence against girls and women is horrendous in the world. And I think a lot of it is fueled by the frustration and the hostility that a lot of these men feel because they feel humiliated and emasculated by the fact that they, you know, through no fault of their own, through through biology, have intense desire to connect with women and women through no fault of their own. Um can't, won't, uh, would would be at great risk in many cultures if they did, uh, would be at great risk in, in virtually almost all cultures, to be honest, um, if not risk of being stoned to death, like in Pakistan or Afghanistan or someplace like that, certainly at, at reputational risk of being made fun of, of losing friends, of being humiliated by your family and so on. Um, you know, there are very few cultures in the world where women can hook up with guys without worrying about rape or murder or reputational damage or, you know, some horrible repercussion. And so we find ourselves in this so-called war of the sexes, but it's not between us. It's the situation in which we find ourselves. So you know, to, to concretize it a little bit, uh, you know, every time I'm on an airplane, I, I feel resentment for the person in front of me who leans their seat back into my face space. But it's not their fault. It's the airplane company's fault. It's, it's Boeing's fault. It's Airbus's fault. It's the fault of whoever designs these fucking horrible torture tubes. It's not the person in front of me. And then, of course, what do I do? I lean my seat back to get away because this guy's seat is right in my face. So I put my seat back. And now the guy behind me is fucking resenting me. It's not my fault. Right. But the resentment's real. And so you get air rage and you get people freaking out and you get people kicking the back of the chair and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But it's not about you and me. It's about this situation that we find ourselves in. And so I think it's really important, especially for young men who are feeling this frustration and this this uh, need to connect with women and finding it very difficult. It's really important that you remember that it's not the women's fault. It's not that they're being unreasonable. It's no more her fault than it is the guy who sits in front of you and leans his chair back. It's just the situation that we find ourselves in. And enigmatically, there's no real good reason or there's no rational way to work your way out of this situation. I was listening to a really interesting conversation yesterday. Rob Lowe has a podcast. Um, I think it's called The Lowdown or something. I don't know. But anyway, Google Rob Lowe podcast. And I was listening to his conversation with Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. And 
they were talking about approaching a dog you don't know. And Rob said, well, you know, if I'm walking down the, the beach and I see a really cute dog and I want to go over and pet it and, you know, like, how should I do that? And Caesar said, well, you shouldn't. And he's like, yeah, but I'm a dog lover and, and it's a really cute dog and I want to go over and pet it and say hi to it and get to know. And Caesar, Caesar was great. He's like, OK, you're a dog lover. So what? That dog doesn't know you. You're going to walk straight up to that dog. You're going to that's a threatening behavior. That dog's going to feel defensive. It's going to feel freaked out. And then you're like oh, making all these high sounds and you reach out to pet it. That dog, the, what the fuck? That dog's like, who is this person? What are you doing? Get the fuck away from me. And he'll have every I'm paraphrasing Caesar um, and he'll have every right to feel that. Right. And Rob was a little taken aback. Right. Because Rob's like, but I love dogs. Why can't I just go up and touch them? Well, same reason you can't go up and touch women, Rob. Maybe Rob can. But most people can't just walk up to some woman and be like, hey, I'm a woman lover. Let me pet you. Doesn't work that way. So Rob said, well, okay, what should I do then? And Caesar said, well, you know, if you walk over and sort of talk to the the human and just be like, hey, your dog's cool. What kind of breed is that? And whatever. And you kind of ignore the dog. Just let the dog check you out and you occupy your space and you aren't asking for anything you're not reaching out you're not doing anything threatening and then if that dog's interested he'll come over and sniff you and then you can pet him and i thought man that's such great dating advice right it's not about what you want it's about subtly and without any kind of force or weirdness or obligation making it clear that you're here, that you're present. And if this person is interested in knowing you more, they have an opportunity to do that. And if they don't do it, you don't push the issue. So I think if you're a young man trying to figure out how to approach women, listen to that podcast with Caesar Milan. Again, and I don't mean this to equate women with dogs in any way. I mean, this is not about insulting anybody. This is about how to approach another being with respect and uh, uh, moderation, I guess, is, is the point. All right. I hope I didn't fuck up that parallel. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kevin Allison. He's fucking awesome. All right, before I let you go, I want to update you on a tool that I requested a few episodes back. The idea was that people, it would be nice if there was a map that people could sort of enter themselves onto, uh, click on the map and say something about yourself. And then if somebody's going to be in that area, they can locate you uh, generally uh, or get in touch with you. And then you can decide if you want to hang out. Somebody put this together uh, and there's a place to go. It's a uh, fossil map. Fossil is is easy in Spanish. F-A-C-I-L map dot org forward slash T speaking dot edit. OK, so if you go to that link, uh, 
facilmap.org forward slash tspeaking.edit. So what you do is you just go there and then in the upper right corner, you click add and then you click marker and then you just click your general location on the map and then you click edit data in the info box in the upper left corner and that's where you write your name and something about yourself and some contact info or your Twitter feed or Instagram feed or whatever so people can get in touch with you. It's awesome. It's really cool. And I hope people will populate this so you guys can hang out and, uh, you know, go on a hike, grab a beer, watch a movie, uh, play some poker, do whatever you're into doing. And uh, I know a lot of you travel, so it can be really useful in that sense as well. You know, finding someone, hey, I'm in Taiwan. Look, there's somebody in Taiwan who listens to Tangentially Speaking. Let's hang out. Um, but a lot of people are clicking on it, but they're not putting any info. So there's just this like empty click like, oh, someone's there, like, but we don't know who or how to reach them or anything. So make sure when you get in there uh, that you don't forget to put who you are and how to get in touch with you so that people can use the map. Facilmap.org forward slash tspeaking.edit. OK, I'm going to play a song I've played before. It's by a band in Pakistan, I think, um, Rapta, R-A-A-P-T-A. It's, and if I remember correctly, like one of the guys in the band listens to the podcast and he sent it to me, but it was months and months ago. And it's in my, um, my playlist on Spotify. And the song comes up. Every once in a while. And every time I think, damn, that's a good song. That's really beautiful and simple and succinct and really sums up something important in life. Um, it's called Mr. Man. And if you want to check out my playlist that I'm talking about, it's, uh, it's a public playlist on Spotify. Let me see here. Where is it? What's it called? Oh, no, I'm lost. I always get lost on Spotify. It's called What's On My Mind Now. And my Spotify name is Dude in Hammock, spelled D-O-O-D in Hammock. So I guess that's enough to find it. Um, anyway, it's What's On My Mind Now. And of course, you know my name. And this is Mr. Man by Rapta. And it says that they are, it was recorded in a basement in, where, in Karachi or somewhere in Pakistan. Anyway, hope you enjoy this. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Check out Risk by Kevin Allison, or hosted by Kevin Allison. It's awesome. Really interesting podcast. Uh, we talk about some of the episodes. You talk about the recording of my episode and some of the other episodes that I've listened to. And also there's a book, The Best of Risk, and my stories in there, as well as Dan Savage and, oh, man, a whole bunch of people, uh, famous folks uh, who tell their stories on risk. So you might want to check that out, too, if you prefer to read rather than listen or both, whatever. Thanks for listening to this, and I'll be back with you soon. I met a man out there at the bottom of the open sea He said, son, give me your hand, why don't you stay here with me I said, no, Mr. Man, I'm only looking around I don't know what life is all about, but I know what I found 
host of risk uh welcome it's really good to to chat with you man you're a guy who yeah. listens to stories i want to hear your story oh shit jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> yeah so first of all how long have you been doing risk you're you're an og podcaster aren't you yeah we started in 2009 and at the time i had not a friend of mine like challenged me to tell a true story on stage because I had been doing character. I'd, I'd been doing sketch comedy so long mm. and doing big, big, broad characters. And a friend of mine said, ah, you know, I think your own life is so crazy. It would be fun if you just got up on stage and told a true story. And I said, oh, that feels so risky. And he said, <laughs> that cling to that word because that's a good sign you know right so i thought okay well what's the riskiest story i could possibly tell and at the time i thought it was uh the first time i tried prostituting myself when i was 23 years old it was it was it was a very short-lived professional profession for me <laughs> it was basically like one week and then i was like no no i'm not cut out for that mm. Um, well, it w at least it wasn't for lack of clients. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was more like, oh my gosh, I'm not, uh, I don't, I'm not that good of an actor. I guess you know, <laughs> there's a certain amount of acting that is required right. for that. Right. Um, but yeah, I told this story in front of a live audience at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, and the energy I felt that night was so different from what I was used to feeling on stage, you know, like literally being able to forget where the fuck I was mm. and, and, and ask the audience, wait, what did it, where was I? And you know, like you're in conversation when you're telling a true story as opposed to all this memorized silliness or whatever. And I just felt really lit up walking away from the show that night. And I thought, okay, this is what I can do. I can combat a decade's worth of stage fright and social anxiety and being afraid of other comedians uh, because, you know, I had been in this sketch comedy group in the early 90s and had since pretty much lost my career. And I, I was like, what I can do is I can create this show, call it Risk, and have people tell true stories that really forces themselves outside of their comfort zone and people can come out about anything, and, and that'll be it. And I had never, I was unfamiliar with The Moth. I had heard a little bit of This American Life, but I was suspecting, I, I was like, uh, there's probably a niche in there where I could have more uncensored stories. And sure enough, I started listening to This American Life, and I heard Ira Glass give a trigger warning before a story, right. where he said... I have to warn the audience, the following story acknowledges the existence of sex. 
I was like, there you go. There There's is a niche. niche that can definitely be filled. A show that doesn't have to give that insane warning. Oh, man. Um, that's yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember so listening. A- I was listening to Terry Gross once, uh, Yeah, you know, on NPR. And she said she was interviewing this guy and he had written a book and she kept referring to the book as the chicken s word crew (laughs) and i thought what a dumb name for a book you know and she interviewed this guy for 20 minutes or something and it was like about you know a stock brokerage firm or something and of course the name of his book was the chicken shit crew but the whole time she's saying the chicken s word crew i was like what the fuck is going on with this woman oh my god yeah, well, I'm yeah. glad you you saw that in 2009. I mean, how many podcasts existed? I started in 2010, and and I feel like I was one of the you know originals. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was definitely good timing. It was because you know after that the deluge. You know, I heard you talking on a Daniele Bellelli podcast at one point, and the two of you were talking about how. Now you feel like you have to keep coming up with podcasts, you know, keep throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what gets listeners because everyone's attention is so scattered. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, we keep plugging away at it. And, and there is an interesting trend that someone told us about. Someone said that there are now advertising networks for podcasts are talking about, we're getting a little tired of constantly chasing the new shiny thing Maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to shows that have been around for a long time and maintained a pretty consistent audience, you mm. know, because it's, it's hard after all these years to feel like you're not still growing. We're still doing all kinds of experimentation format wise, but we wish we were reaching a wider audience and the Unfortunately, the solution that we've come at is, well, maybe we should make a family-friendly version of the show, mm, you know? Right. Uh, we, we might end up doing that, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. People, a lot of people are a bit afraid of risk because they don't know if someone will be eating shit or eating people or... <laughs> yeah. But the truth is, like, there's so many stories on the show where nothing super graphic or challenging happens. It's just the high stakes are the emotions that the person had, you know, in what was going on in their life. Right. It's all like peak experience kind of stuff, you know, whether it's low lows or high highs. Yeah, I was going to ask what your, you know, what obviously you know the question everyone must ask you what makes a good story you know but um is it just the extremity of the experience or are you also looking for people who are particularly good at telling stories have a distinctive voice yeah we do a lot of workshopping with people and a lot of pulling things out the number one thing and and you told an amazing, like an all-time risk classic, and it's got a title, which is like the theme of our entire series. It's outside the comfort zone. Right. Um, and that's a perfect example. That story is maybe 25 or 30 minutes long, I forget. But 
it was a matter of me just continuing to poke and prod at you. Okay, then what sort of bodily sensation did you feel? Okay, yeah. then what thought ran through your head? Because people tend to generalize and summarize, but have you know that thing called EDMR? It, it, it's right. a, yeah, where, where a person Whispering. is following a, a, a oh, oh, oh no the no no not movement. ASMR yeah the yeah movement. a person's yeah. following a bouncing light which is like a hypnotic anchor mm. and then the therapist is asking them all these sensory questions about something traumatic that happened to them so that's very similar to what we do we just keep poking and prodding about okay, but what was the temperature like at that point? And what was the f expression on that person's face? Because huh. the more you get into that kind of stuff, it's just like sense memory with actors. It's, right. You start to really re-experience it again when you get into that level of intimacy. Yeah, so, I, I always send people to that recording. I've told that story on Rogan's podcast and on my own podcast, and whatever. But I always tell people, if you want to hear the best version of this story, go to Risk, you know, and I send them the link to it. Because you really, and this is something I wanted to talk to you about, you, you didn't just say to me, tell the story. You did what you, you interrogated the story and you yeah. pulled, as you just described, you pulled detail out of me. And I had told that story a bunch of times. I'm a fucking loudmouth, you know, storyteller. I'm, that's yeah. my thing, right? Um, but you, may, you helped me tell that story much better than I ever had before. And then you guys added sound effects, and I mean, you really do a good job. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that that's a perfect example because you were on LSD in that story, right? Yeah. We, people tend to just use generic descriptions of like what their LSD experience was like and quickly go through it, but there are some weird, unique, little idiosyncrasies to people's different experiences with that sort of thing. So when you really ask them, no, 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 wait, what were you really thinking then? Or, or what, what did things sound like around you? Then it can start to really bring things alive. And that story is so, I mean, that, that's a perfect example of such a high stakes story. You thought you were gonna die. Yeah. Uh, and kind of went through a little bit of the psychological steps of accepting possibly dying. Um, yeah. And so that's about as high stakes as it gets. And so it's well worth kind of slowing down time. There's that Hitchcock thing where he said, when you get to the boring parts of the story, just speed up the storytelling. When you get to the intense shit, slow that mm. stuff down. Like, you know, 95 shots for the shower scene, you know? Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So it sounds like your acting background really informs the way you approach this podcast as, as a host. That You're Probably. coaching people in a way. Yeah, probably unconsciously a lot of it. Like, I think I picked up a lot over the years of story structure and the use of, I guess, the voice and, and all of that in sharing experiences. And like I said, the whole sense memory thing. Yeah, all of that kind of does come into it because there are people. There was a fellow once who told a story and I didn't record it. Someone else on our team recorded it where he tried to sail around the world, right? In a little like sailboat and ended up near Indonesia, had a stroke and was just laying flat on his back in his boat thinking he was gonna die because he couldn't move like most of his body. 
the boat is boarded by pirates and they're looting it, taking all his stuff. One of the pirates has like an eight-year-old boy and the boy says, can't we at least take this guy to the shore? So they do. They take him to the shore and there someone finds him and takes him to a hospital. It's such a remarkable story, but he just could not tell it with any emotion Mm. (laughs) he couldn't like tap into the nitty-gritty of how it really felt and you know there's a way that npr deals with that sort of thing that is that they'll have the host of the show come on and tell the story for them the host will come on and be like it was really getting down to the wire for so and so you know and and so we try to avoid that But there are cases where we're thinking of maybe doing that sometimes now because, Mm. for example, we we got this story from a gal who her she was into party drugs when she was about fifteen, you know, typical like MDMA and that kind of stuff, and her parents sent her away to a Christian boarding school in the wilderness, like somewhere in Michigan or Wisconsin or something like that, and it was major. Handmaid's Tale, like major, like abuse happening at this school. And we've just had the hardest time with her because she's clearly still so traumatized, even though this was like 15 years ago, that she really just has a hard time just getting it out. Yeah. And so we're, we're, we're thinking, well, we've been always so open to changing things format wise and experimenting. So maybe we will leave some room for doing what NPR does sometimes with that sort of thing. Well, that's that's the thing. Like a lot of people have great stories, but they don't know how to tell them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or there's an emotional block to flowing through the telling of the story, of course. So if if they give you permission, that's that's performing it possibly a very healing service for a person. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, it was so funny because the first ever episode of Risk was called Strange Sex. And at that time, like we were brand new. And so I just put up on Craigslist. Anyone out there have a strange sex story you want to share on our podcast? <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> and there was this gal that I sat down with, like she might've been the very first person I ever recorded for the show. We're sitting opposite each other um, in this room at NYU that I had access to. And she was like, oh my gosh, there was this crazy weekend when I was in college at this frat house where all this sexual stuff happened. And as she's going through the story, I saw her eyes start to glaze over. And I started to realize, oh shit, she's realizing this story hmm. is not as funny as she thought right. it was. Like she, she, Some of this shit is kind of haunting her right now. So right there, I just had the instinct after we finished recording that to say, you know what? I'm going to send you this recording. Yeah. We don't have to run it on the show. You get back to us if, if you feel like you would like us to continue exploring it. And that's happened many times. There have been, you know, just recently we did shows in Portland and Seattle. And there was a gal who pitched us. And we were ready to start working with her. But then when we started working with her, we realized, oh, she's she needs more time with this. Uh, and so we'll tell people that we'll tell people, hey, why don't you share this recording with close loved ones, 
a therapist or whatnot. Mm. Um, see what it's like to come back to it a year or two, two later. And people have done that and come back with extraordinary stories. Have you? So yeah, it's it's a balancing act, right? I, I imagine you must get into some complicated ethical spaces, you know, which you're you're sort of touching on here. But have you had stories that you've uh, I don't know what do you say published or posted or wh- whatever um, that you regretted that you felt like ooh you know what that that's gone wrong somehow. Yeah, there we've been re-releasing our original episodes on Thursdays and it's been kind of interesting because hearing some of these stories again and realizing, oh, that story doesn't have as much compassion toward the other <laughs> characters in it as it should. You know, it was very funny right. because during the course of Risk's existence, is when I kind of learned that I was a kinky person. Uh, there's, a, there's a story called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, which is a 90-minute story of me being right. invited to this kink camp and me saying, ah, I don't think so, and the person saying, hey, take a risk, you know, using the show's tagline and me feeling like, oh, God, I got to do this. And then having this, like, transformational sex weekend, four days of craziness, And coming back and really embracing, hey, you know what? I am polyamorous and kinky and yada, yada, and really exploring that. Um, And one of our editors was like, oh, you should hear this story that was told on one of the very first episodes of Risk, where this woman just like makes fun of kinksters the whole time. And I listened back to this thing and I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty that is a very sex negative story. Let's get rid of that one. (laughs) So stuff like that does happen. And then there are cases where we're like, you should really run this by a lawyer before you get Mm. up on stage or, or get on the mic with us in any way. Uh, we've lost some amazing stories that way where a family member will be like, no, 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 you can't do that. We allow people to go by fake names and to change Mm. lots of details to like protect other people. But yeah, it is, it is a, there are weird instances that arise and, and situations where you wonder, is this person stable are they mentally well enough to be sharing this Mm. story you know right and of course you don't have fact checkers so there's no way to know yes people are being honest yeah one of the most well-known stories on risk is called a hard landing uh this fella comes to new york from london and starts this torrid affair with this you know beautiful woman who it starts getting really, really sick, and there's just all sorts of bizarre drama, and eventually he starts seeing signs that she's just made up many of the aspects. You know, she's faking her identity and her sickness and all that sort of thing. And fans have written in, oh my God, that seems so much like a movie. Is it really true? And we're like, well, we ask a lot of questions, but ultimately we just have to kind of trust people, you know? Yeah. Well, one of the questions I I was thinking uh, I wanted to talk to you about is what is the role of truth in a good story? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is that there's a difference between, like, accuracy and truth. I, I, think, that, I yeah. think that what you're ultimately going for is that the story is emotionally true. That, and, mm. and, and that's really tricky, too, because if you see the more classic, more formulaic sort of storytelling shows... One of the most off-putting things is that people will end with like a very kind of platitude, a very kind of like just liberal, happy, feel good sort of ending that everyone can agree with and that sort of thing. And you walk away feeling like, ah, it, felt, it felt like that person kind of forced that resolution on that uh, mm, story. Right. Uh, so we will welcome people ending a story with something like, I wish I could say that I forgave my mother, but I still feel really fucked up about it, to be honest with you. Like, we're okay with a person ending a story like that. Yeah. 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 I, I, I feel like stories that don't have that tidy ending stick with me longer they, because they feel less packaged and yeah. more... I, I mean, isn't there something about a story that it's not over, right? That... It, if a person's telling their story, by definition, they're still living it. Yeah. And it will change as they change, as they age, right? Yes. And and a lot of people don't realize that. You know, we've had people come on the show 10 years later and want to kind of retell a story. And we've allowed it in some cases because the person feels like, yeah, my interpretation of that part of my life back then, I feel like was a bit off now that I look back at it. And yeah, like Mike Berbiglia, I've worked with his director a few times, Seth Barish, and he has a very interesting exercise that he'll have storytellers do where he'll say, okay, tell me a 20 minute story. You tell it and then it'll be like, okay, now do it in eight minutes. And you're like, oh, shit, yeah. all right, let me try that. And then he'll say, okay, now two minutes, and you try that. And he's trying to get you to recognize, oh, these things are extremely adaptable, and one can start to feel differently about you know, what you thought the story meant a little while ago. There's a story called Man at Hawaii that I told about how when I was 17 years old, I went down to Peru to build schools for the poor down there with some Jesuits. And when I was working on the story, I saw that every plot point in the story was a, Je a particular Jesuit pushing me in a certain direction. And then realizing later, oh, they were grooming me to become a Jesuit. <laughs> like, like, like I, I had all this profound experience in Peru, but then I look back and I'm like, oh, uh, I, there was kind of a puppet master behind all that. And the end goal was for me to become a priest. <laughs> mm. And like, that is something that I might never have realized if I hadn't gone back and really tried to reconstruct that story. So I think there are a lot of things like that for a lot of people where you remember it a certain way because it's convenient to you to remember it that way now. But then you go back and you can be rather challenged by some of it. And then there's the, you know, the deeper layer where you have to question now, am I remembering it the way I'm remembering it now because of some 
psychological bias. I'm, I'm, it's all, I mean, it's this dance, right? It's this sort of, you know, Einsteinian relativity. Nothing is fixed. Right. Right. Not what happened, not your memory of what happened, not your interpretation of your memory of what happened. They're all these different moving pieces. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a, the, I told a story on, so I have a near death experience story as well about almost drowning in the Colorado river. And I shared, I reshared it again recently. And I pretty much went with the script that I originally went with like way back when I first shared it around 2010 and then shared the recording with my therapist and he said man you do not have any compassion for yourself in that story huh. you are just you're very mean to yourself in the way you tell that story and that really kind of shook me i was like oh god yeah that is that's true what would it be like to tell that story having a lot more compassion for myself so this stuff is very interesting to experiment with that way. Yeah. I, when I, um, started the podcast, um, uh, 2010 in my case, a, a year after you, uh, one of the first people I interviewed was a Jungian analyst, mm. um, an old dude. He was in his, I think he was in his late eighties. Mm-hmm. And a really fascinating guy. I don't remember how I met him. Maybe his wife was a friend of my aunt's or something. I don't remember. Um, He lived in L.A. And uh, I went to his house. And his father had written Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Oh, wow. And Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, he was one of these writing teams in the 20s. Two guys, you know. Um, I forget the name, but very famous. Um, anyway, this this guy told me the story about his parents' marriage, which was uh, essentially an open marriage, mm-hmm. uh, but in the 20s. Mm-hmm. And his wife or his mother... Um, they lived together. It was the it was the his mother, his father, and his father's best buddy, who was his writing partner. Mm. And the mother sort of shifted from his dad to the other guy, but they all remained in the house together and it was all cool. And he came home from college or the army or something and they sat him down and they're like, okay, look, you might notice I'm sleeping in his room now and we're all cool with it and everything's fine. This is the fucking 1920s, right? Right, right, Maybe 30s. And anyway, he told me that. He told me all these other stories, all these great, wonderful stories. And then uh, the next day, he sent me an email. He said, Chris, I enjoyed our conversation so much. Uh, I told you things I've never told anyone. Um, But uh, it occurs to me that if my patients were to hear any of my stories, it might ruin their therapy. Yeah. And also people in my family don't know these different things. And and I haven't, it wasn't about the marriage. It was all this other stuff that, that I've never said publicly. Um, and he said, uh, I don't mind if this is known, but would you mind just not posting this until I die? Oh, wow. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. So I have no idea if he's still alive. I haven't. I'm not calling every year. You know, hey, is, uh, is Paul home? Oh, he's dead. Really? Great. 
<laughs> but but at some point you should check. <laughs> I guess. I guess. I don't. I don't even know if I still have the recording. I, I've changed hard drives and computers so many times. But anyway, the um, the the point of that is it gave me this. It, it reminded me of this line someone said: "You should always write posthumously." Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my, I went a, after I di- had that Kevin goes to King Camp experience. It was funny because there was a fella there at the camp. He was like, oh, you're new here. He's like, well, let me tell you, it's a bit of a Pandora's box. You might find yourself, you know, a year from now liking stuff you weren't prepared to like. And indeed, about a year after, I was, I started to, like, have some really, talk about Jungian, some really crazy role play sort of things happen and tried out some of the more taboo stuff and uh, was a bit conflicted about it all. And I went to a proper sex therapist and he used to tell me all the time, listen, you know, you don't have to share all of these stories just because you've constructed this, you know, persona of being the guy who helps people come out about stuff. Like you too can let things have a little bit of time and maybe publish some of this under a pseudonym or posthumously, you know, like some of the, some of the kinkiest stories and some of the stories where like potential murder or something like that might be involved are situations where people will go by a fake name on the show, you know? Um, But I always think about that because, you know, it's very hard for me to like sit down and be like, okay, I'm really going to work on a story now, but probably won't release it until after I'm dead. You know, <laughs> like, like it's, it's such a motivating factor of, and we'll put it up next month, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, is, I mean, I struggle a lot having had this podcast for so long with the line between Mm, secretiveness and discretion right like uh similar to you i i I mean i'm assuming you're motivated by a desire to destigmatize things Mm -hmm. um and you know here we are two guys making a living independently we're not working for a company we're not pissing in a jar when we go to work and you know meeting with hr every month and all that stuff so we've we're kind of unusual in having the freedom to say whatever the fuck we want. Right, right, right. And so then does that give us the responsibility to say things other people aren't allowed to say just to keep that space open, you know, like hacking the weeds back in the garden a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. And and you know, I'm sure in the in the length of time that both of our podcasts have existed, you know, I think if, for the most part, people on the right um, don't know about risk or don't listen to risk. I mean, we, we've over the years, we've had some like MAGA sorts of people write in insulting things or whatever, but it's just here and there. We will more often have to like deal with uh, people who were offended, left-leaning people who were offended about right. this or that. and. Sure. I've learned over the years that one of the most effective ways to deal with that is just to acknowledge it, you know, just to acknowledge, okay, this gal did not feel that she was raped in this situation. Another person who might have been also 16 years old and lived through that exact same 
guy feeling her up under the bed and yada yada uh, might feel that she was. So we're just acknowledging this is just this person's interpretation. Or sometimes, you know, Halloween time, you know, okay, we're not saying <laughs> that exorcism is real, but this right. person believed that this happened. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, one of the stories that uh, really struck me, I think it, it's also in your book, uh, the, the, I don't know, what's uh, the book called? Just it's Risk? It's Just or Risk, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and there's some great stories in there, Dan Savage and... Mm. Uh, God, I, I I remember there. I just looked on the cover and I recognized like half the names. But there was one by a woman I'd never heard of, um, a black woman who described getting off on being like in a slave master situation with her white husband or boyfriend. Yeah. And man, that one, I went back and listened to her tell the story as well on your show. And that one was so powerful and I imagine, I mean, the shit she must have gotten from every different angle to come out with that. Yeah, it's funny. I think that she might have had to deal with more shit coming at her from other places. I think that Risk has done a really good job of, like, situating itself so that people understand, okay, some of this stuff might, I might be uncomfortable with. Because, yeah, th th that story is called Slave uh, by Melina Williams. And I think that she might have had to deal with more uh, upset within the kink community or mm. the black community. But the risk yeah. community was pretty cool about it. There, there was also a story uh, where two guys engage in scat play and when i spoke to and this was under a this fellow went by a fake name and when i spoke to him about it i was like okay we can't just dive right into shit eating <laughs> never a good idea <laughs> so i asked him i was like now tell me give me more context for this relationship and sure enough this was like a love affair like this was you know like uh, 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 he, this was his introduction to the whole kink scene where he was in his 20s this other fellow was in his 40s and they met at a spanking camp or something like that and then <laughs> and and he takes you through these phases of their relationship and the story ends up being about consent and negotiation right. And then the shit scene is at the very end, and I was like, okay, this is how this has to be constructed so that people feel like there are human beings here and they're having a really human experience. And sure enough, I was like, I, I was so worried when we published that episode. And instead, I got emails like, a woman wrote to me, she's like, I am a Christian mother of four children in Iowa. I don't have a kinky bone in my body. And I can't believe you brought me to tears with uh, that story. And I, I was just so proud of that. Like, people still talk about that story today, but talk about it very fondly. So it really yeah. is, like you were saying, just how, how careful you are about how you're presenting things, you know? And the sorts of, like, caveats that you might have before or after to give people a little bit of aftercare, basically, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you find 
something that I've noticed in my own life is that I feel like I experience my life as narrative. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Do you feel that? Do you do you feel like like cuz I'll be going through an experience and it'll be like, "Oh, I I see the story taking shape around me somehow." Yes. And that can be that can be a real pitfall. You know what I mean? Like 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 the Jungian analysts and narrative therapists are always talking about how you can really fuck yourself up by having story mm. frames in place that are not serving you well. I talked about Kevin Goes to King Camp before. That is like the quintessential example of I'm at this King Camp for four days. No one told me there are no gay men. That No one told me, oh, yeah, there's lots of kink camps and gay men only go to kink camps with other gay men. Other, other kink camps have everybody, trans, bi, right. everything. But gay men prefer to be just with gay men. So I'm at this kink camp, and after four days of, like, not having an orgasm, you know, like, I'm like, what am I going to do here? And so at the age of 40, what was that, 41, I played with a woman for the first time. And I was like... Mm. There's the end of my story. You know what I mean? Like, even as it was happening, I was like, this is it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting how if you if you experience life as narrative, I mean, was there something about the narrative power of that decision that led you into the decision? Oh, exactly. You know? Exactly. Right, 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 right. Uh, I, I think because I there was a community bulletin board where you could post fantasies or desires and i think that when i saw that i was like oh this might lead to story oh, material okay. you know and indeed it so did. you actually <laughs> solicited it yeah yeah I, I remember i was in uh, in topanga i had a little rental house in topanga uh, near LA a couple years five years ago or something three years ago and there was terrible fires and we were evacuated and I was waiting, you know, like a week to to go back, and I didn't know if my house had burned down. Jeez, gosh. And you know, it wasn't my house; it was a rental, as I said. But you know, my shit was there, and yeah. and I, you know, sort of cataloged in my mind like what because I didn't even I wasn't there when the evacuation happened, so I didn't get a chance to grab things, right. you know, the photo albums or the old journals or whatever it was. Um, so. I was thinking about, you know, what will I lose? What will be gone if that house is gone? But honestly, when I found out the house wasn't gone, I was disappointed because I valued the story more than the stuff. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, that is really it, interesting. You know, it was a bummer. It's like now I can't tell the story about how my house burned down, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so funny. Um, when my husband and I broke up in 2010, we had been together for nine years, and I insisted we go to a marriage counselor not to get back together, which he didn't believe, <laughs> but to like have closure to, to our marriage. And at one point, the therapist asked us to write a letter to one another, just expressing our feelings. And I wrote this letter that just brought me to tears. And then I brought it into the therapy session and it brought the therapist to tears. And like, 
it, to me, it was it was a very important document of the end of this relationship. I can't find that goddamn letter for the life of me. And I've even asked my ex-husband, do you have a copy of it? He doesn't have it. And so it's the sort of thing where I'm like, okay, uh, if I tell the story of my marriage, how do I reconstruct what I said in that letter? You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden you're rewriting <laughs> your own history. And, right. Yeah. Or, or is the point that, that the letter is lost as is the relationship, you know? Is it a sand painting or something? Exactly. Like, to me, I have such ADHD that this is a common thing of, am I just a moron for having forgotten something or lost something? Or is there significance <laughs> in my mm. having lost that thing? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned, you said the word closure a second ago. That's something that, always strikes me when people talk about wanting closure. Yeah. Um, in a way, it kind of feels um, counterfeit in, in, to me in, in that it's like there is no closure of grief or sadness or loss. or You know what I mean? It doesn't end. That's a very um, but good as you point. Yeah. As you said it just now, it occurred to me that maybe what closure means is a way to end a story mm, that yeah. you're like, OK, I'm still going to feel bad, but at least now I know how that story ends. Yeah. You know, have you ever seen the movie Safe by uh, Todd Haynes? Uh, Julianne Moore is a woman who is either paranoid that she's becoming more and more allergic to the world around her or, oh, or wow. really is becoming more and more allergic to everything in the mm. world around her. And she joins this cult-like commune where they're all obsessed with, you know, keeping things as natural and what, uh, to keep allergies away. And the, at the end of the movie, she's just looking in the mirror saying, I love myself. And with an expression on her, or something like that, with an expression on her face that says, you just, audiences were very pissed off. They were like, this movie mm. doesn't have an ending. It didn't like let us know whether or not we should feel okay about that cult or feel like cults are bad or yada yada. And Todd Haynes talked a lot after the movie was released about how, yeah, I feel like I would be, as an artist, as someone who cares about that character, I feel like I would be forcing upon her cults are bad or cults are good or whatever, you know, mm. whereas like her actual experience still seems really ambiguous. And so that's how I ended it. And I just found that really like courageous and fascinating on his part. It's funny that, that I say we went, there were two things that I told uh, my husband on the night we decided to get divorced. I said, one, I insist we remain friends to whatever extent we can. And we have. And two, let's go to a marriage counselor to, you know, just talk about the past and everything. And so in those two requests, I was acknowledging, I think, wanting closure, but also not, you know? Yeah. 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 Good point. That's interesting. Do, do you think... How to phrase this? Like we're talking about how you and I both experience life as narrative in many ways, even in real time. And I, I think other p 
people, it's probably more common for people to to experience the narrative in retrospect. They look back and they see a story a year later or five right. years later. Yeah. Some people, I think, never see the story, right? They're people who didn't grow up reading books and stories or their parents didn't tell them stories when they were kids or whatever. Yeah. And they just don't have that narrative sense. But stories still happen to them, right? Yeah. I mean, do you ever get people... I mean, I used to hitchhike a lot, and I see my podcast in some ways as a continuation of hitchhiking, uh-huh. where you just meet a random person and you're going to spend an hour or two with them, and and you just sort of you know pull it out of them, sort of the way you do with risk, but you already know there's a story to be pulled, as opposed to me, I'm just throwing a line into a pond with no idea what's in there, you know? Right. Yeah. But I mean, don't you feel like there are a lot of people with walking around with incredible stories and they have no idea oh absolutely and that's why it's so frustrating that there there's this storytelling scene there's the moth there's people who listen to npr there's people who take a lot of creative writing sorts of classes and are drawn to storytelling shows uh however we are always like wait a minute this this gal that was you know only 16 years old and was rescued from being under the aegis of this pimp you know uh she doesn't have the vocabulary and the education to construct a story the way we're used to hearing and Mm. so that's one of the reasons i was talking about before my feeling like how can we honor our the the way that we've always wanted it to really be what the person felt and what the person really believed, not us constructing the story for them, but also get some of these stories from people who are not uh, college educated or, um, you know, English isn't their first language, that sort of thing, because yeah, like extraordinary things are happening to so many folks like that. Yeah. It's frustrating. So were you a Spalding Gray fan? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. I was very daunted when I first saw uh, Swimming to Cambodia. You know, it was one of those things where when you see someone do like something that you want to do, it it can be like, uh, oh, God damn. (laughs) Don't do it so well. (laughs) You're stealing my niche, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and that was very... Also, uh, sad when he uh, killed himself. Uh, the the uh, he, it was on the Staten Island ferry. He jumped off the Staten Island ferry. Um, but he was extraordinary. Yeah, fascinating guy. He was yeah. He was one of the great storytellers of all time. I, I would say. And I think that he really like uh, established what then kind of became the the modern oral personal oral storytelling tradition that we're a part of that the moth really kind of yeah. codified eventually yeah yeah have you heard um there's an episode of np of um this american life where uh spalding's widow whose name is kathy russo i think uh-huh. tells a story about after he died, like when the night he disappeared and they didn't know what had happened to him. And then a months later, I think they were at a house on Long Island, maybe Montauk. And this bird flew into the house. Oh, have you ever heard that no, story? No, 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 no. I have to look that uh, up now. 
Yeah, I'll I'll make a note to send you the link. It's um it's a pretty powerful story and it's kind of um I don't know how to say it. It it, it feels like the kind of story that Spalding would want to occur around uh, his own death. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's like a a post-mortem kind of feeling to it. It's it's really beautiful. And you can tell she's not a storyteller by nature. She's right. just telling you what happened. Right. And so it's very I mean there's you know we've talked so much about the artistry of telling a story, but there's also something very powerful about someone who you can tell isn't accustomed to telling stories. Oh, absolutely. There's like an innocence and a beauty to it. You know, so during the lockdown, we started doing risk shows as live streams. And then we started asking people, uh, why don't you, why don't we have risk fans get together and pitch us stories via live stream? All of a sudden we were like, Oh, why aren't we using this technology to talk to the fans in other ways? And a gal pitched a story. She was like, okay, uh, about six weeks into lockdown, sat down on the toilet and had a baby. (laughs) She had had no idea that she was pregnant. And I said, okay, we've got to get that story. Uh, We started talking and she kept sending us drafts of the story and... I was like, okay, she's definitely not accustomed to storytelling, right? And so finally I said, why don't you record yourself telling this to a good friend or a family member or something like that? She told the story to her sister-in-law and recorded it and sent us in this recording that was about an hour long. And I said to our editors, fuck it. Let's run that. Like, you know, like, like just this conversation between this, these two women, you definitely got the whole scope of the story. Uh, but it was in this very different way of just like listening to mm. a couple of people sitting around the kitchen table having coffee. Um, there was a fella named uh, Joe Frank. Do you remember Joe Frank? Yeah. Yeah, he, I do. He's a columnist or San Francisco something? He had a sh- I think it was San Francisco. He had a late night show on some oh, NPR yeah. affiliates. And actually, Ira Glass was his apprentice. That's how Ira Glass learned his radio stuff. But Joe Frank had a very experimental show where he would include long telephone conversations or buddhist lectures he'd heard or or people performing little sketches and he would never inform you whether what it was you were even listening to you know you would think Mm. is this fiction or true or or what it's and so i mean i think it would be very very hard to pull that off other than in the very niche way that he did it but we do love experimenting that way sometime in order to get around the fact that yeah some people aren't polished storytellers and it's kind of nice that they aren't actually you know it, it makes you mentioned um todd uh the, the film director mm-hmm. yeah uh, he did some very i didn't see the film you mentioned but I, I saw something else by him i can't remember what it was called now but it was very kind of raw and um it it felt experimental and, and anyway the, the the connection is i was thinking about um, directors who tell stories in ways that involve real people. Oh, yeah. Um, as opposed to just actors. Yeah. You know? 
and sort of your transition as well from acting to standing on stage as yourself is, you know, there's this interesting line between standing on stage, pretending to be somebody versus standing on stage and just being yourself. It's and and interestingly for you, it seemed to be more relaxing. Is that true? Yes, it is. However, I've never stopped questioning it. You know, like, like when we first started risk, the, the most common criticism of the show was love the stories, hate Kevin Allison. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Those are just your friends, right? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) No, it was funny because you know how you look for the bad reviews, you know, like, like (laughs) people who worked for me were like, look, look, there's like 15 really glowing reviews. And you focused on the, then the 16th person saying, I hate Kevin Allison. But it was always, you know, uh, he laughs too much. He uses too much uh, vocal, you know, color in his vocalizations of things and all these things that already I have always been self-conscious about. And I addressed it in a monologue on the show. I was like, yeah, part of the reason I do this is because my mother used to tell me. You use your hands too much. Don't run up the stairs like that. You look like a girl. Uh, you don't laugh. I, we, I, I was at a funeral for a 17-year-old kid when I was in my 30s, and everyone was sharing stories about the kid and crying, and my mom pulled me into the kitchen, and she was like, you're using too much facial expression. <laughs> Oh, God. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, that. so when people are like, I can't stand your laugh or whatever, like, that does make me self-conscious. And and I feel like I've never stopped kind of uh, examining, wait, 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 am I acting or am I being authentic, you know? um, Well, that's what I was going to go with. Like, when we're standing, I've spent a lot of time standing on stage and being myself or a version of myself right right? which i am on the podcast too there's a lot of there parts of my life i've i've a very very someone who's very close to me who heard me on the podcast before she ever met me and at one point i said to her so how how does the real me compare to the guy you heard interesting yeah 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 and she said you're the same person there's just a lot more of you than you let on <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> you know i guess there's silliness and there 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 aspects of me that i don't share on the podcast um but you know interestingly i my father died 3 years ago and at his funeral you just reminded me of this I I didn't speak, mm. and everyone else did. His brother was there, and mm. my sister spoke, and my mom, and everybody. And as you know, his son, and I look like him, and I sound like him, and you mm. know, I'm, everyone says you're just like your father. I mean, I'd answer the phone, and his own brother wouldn't know if it was me or, right. or his brother he was talking to. And one of the reasons I didn't speak was I felt like I don't I. I don't know how to do this without pretending to be me speaking at my dad's funeral. Right, right, right. Without putting on a little bit of a performance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and not to put on a performance would have just been too raw. I would have just stood there and 
sobbed, you know. So there's there's a I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, there's a, a protectiveness to articulate articulation funny i didn't pronounce that word right um to our to being able to speak uh f- freely and to flow there's a armor to that oh i'll tell you something so around this past christmas time around thanksgiving christmas i suddenly became obsessed with poetry and It's interesting because it reminded me of, oh, yeah, right after the towers fell in 2001, I became obsessed with jazz. Like these moments when all of a sudden something very destructive and upsetting had happened and I became obsessed with some art form. And with the poetry thing, like now I have like dozens and dozens and dozens of books of poetry because I went nuts on it. And I realized that part of what was happening was that I was tired of making sense. You know, I, I was mm. tired of trying to construct stories that did make emotional sense. And I felt like poems are a place where it, it can be anything. I mean, it doesn't have to make any sort of sense whatsoever. It's just, you know, a, a more a pure form of expression, I guess. Um and so I think I was trying to scratch that itch of, of being able to be something other than articulate and making a good point. Because especially politically in the country today, like there's another place where I have a story about what has happened to, say, the Democratic Party since FDR and all, the, all these stories that I have about here's what's really going on, you know. Um, and they don't do anyone any goddamn good. <laughs> like, mm. they, like, they, they don't change anything. Like, we continue to be a fucking mess, you know? No matter what tr- sense I try to make out of it and, and that I try to share with other people, it doesn't seem to make all that much of a difference. You know, things are just going to go the way they're, they go, apparently, you know? <laughs> apparently <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the way things tend to go is the way they're gonna go yeah there's a there's a navajo expression i always i always come back to which is it's easiest to ride a horse in the direction it's going yeah 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 it's like a very kind of Taoist idea of how do we how do we get along with the way things are actually going (laughs) you're not gonna stop the fucking river man you're just gonna flow flow downstream um yeah i mean i mean politics one way of looking at what's happening to america is that there's no shared story anymore everyone's fracturing into their own narratives yeah and a lot of the Folks on the left, like myself, feel very disillusioned. Like, you know, like it's not like I was, you know, when I was in college in uh, the early 90s, uh, I was obsessed with Noam Chomsky and stuff like that. Uh, so it's not like uh, I've been living in an illusion all these years. I've always been very, very critical of how things are going, but the past, whatever, five, six years, it's felt like, oh, shit, things are a lot less stable than I ever thought they were, you know? And that's very jarring, very jarring. Um, There are things like, for example, Twitter, where I 
really have to figure out the extent to which I can be on there because it's so upsetting to be there, you know? It's such an addictive thing to go there, to stay in touch, you know, to feel like you're a part of the conversation. But I'll realize, oh my gosh, that's almost like, you know, drinking a bunch of alcohol every day or something, you know, the way it like it leaves you feeling, you know? Yeah. 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 And I, I also wonder if those things aren't draining some of the energy that we actually need in, in true conversation, yeah. right? Like we're spending, you know, I don't know. It's like sitting home watching porn, jerking off rather than going out and engaging with human beings. That is, you know? that's, that's a very good analogy i think yeah you're right you're right yeah i don't know um what's your earliest memory kevin oh my god so yeah it's a whole story uh, i make a joke about <laughs> it you know uh i'm not surprised <laughs> i'm either three and a half or four years old maybe maybe even four and a somewhere between three and a half and four and a half i would say and I've been told that I already knew I loved boys' butts. <laughs> but this is the moment when I remember knowing it is my mom had this little, it wasn't a Hummel figurine, but it was some sort of like German hard rub, rubber kind of figurine. And it was of a boy about my age, I guess, three and a half or so like that, uh, or maybe i don't know whatever anyway he's got he's in a onesie uh, like a blue onesie and the back the trap door has fallen open and you can see his butt i mean they still make these things it's like an archetypal image i guess <laughs> and uh it was up on a shelf and i saw this thing and it was just like uh, i i was just astounded i grabbed a, a little chair so that I could climb up and get it and when I got it what I was feeling was that it was both very funny hilarious but also very exciting you know like mm. uh I was clearly very turned on by it but felt like the way to speak about it with other people would be how hilarious it was so I grabbed mm. it and I ran upstairs and I started telling my brothers and sisters in their various rooms. I have four brothers and sisters. Look at this. You can see his hiney. Isn't this hilarious? And they thought it was very funny. You know, uh, uh, you know they, I was known as spaz. I was definitely an ADHD kid from the very beginning. Uh, yeah. So they were like, oh, my God, the kid's. He loves the butt on this little figurine. Um, and then I was, and then I thought I should go tell the Sullivans, the neighbors next door. <laughs> so, I thought, so I felt like I was Paul Revere or something like that, like, you know, spreading the, spreading the important news. So I'm running downstairs and I'm about to run outside with this little figurine when all of a sudden I am lift up. My feet are no longer touching the ground. My, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like a cartoon character. My, my feet are still moving, but I'm not touching the ground. I've been pulled by my collar up off the ground, and my mom had grabbed me. And she turned me around, and she had this very, you know, 
stern, not not amused, and kind of like uh, something very disagreeable was happening in her opinion, right? And I said, look, mom, isn't it funny? You can see his hiney. And she said, uh-huh. I'm just going to take this and put it somewhere safe and, and you go back to your room or something like that. And I just felt like kind of crushed and, and definitely felt shamed, right? Like hmm. I had uh, tapped into, I had been excited about something that was embarrassing or, 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 or something like right. that. And uh, when I was leaving to go back up into my room, I turned my head and I saw her throwing it in the garbage can. Oh. Uh, and so that is, as far as I know, my first memory. I've always wondered if I could tap into another one, you know, if I did one of those like EMDR things, because this is one of those cases, this particular story, it fe it's one of those things where you're like, that seems like such a story story. Like that, that feels like very much like the, an origin story of like that wound that so many right. uh, people have about their sexuality, right? Uh, yeah. It, it, I grew up in a very Republican, very uh, uh, Catholic, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, very white, very um, sex negative. The, Cincinnati was actually famous for its the Maplethorpe trial, the Larry Flint trial. When hair mm. came to town, everyone was thrown out by the police, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I grew up very aware that I was very attracted to other boys. And by the time I was five or so, I was terrified of going to kindergarten because I thought, if I'm all day surrounded by other kids, they're gonna pick up on it that I have this thing inside me. Uh, yeah. I'll just be too exposed to too many kids and someone will pick up on it. And sure enough, first day of kindergarten, we're in this single file line to go into our class. And some kid points at me and says, why is your hair orange? And another kid says, it's not orange, it's red. Red like the head on the dick of a dog. And they started laughing at me and making fun of me. And you know what I was thinking at that moment? I was like, thank God. They're focusing uh, on the hair. <laughs> I was relieved because I was like, oh, God, yeah, they, they let them focus on shit that I don't give a shit about. <laughs> so. That's fascinating that you already knew not only that you were attracted to boys, but that it was something to hide. Yes. Well, I'll tell you something. When my parents were celebrating, I think it was like their 40th wedding anniversary. I went back home to Cincinnati and they threw this big party and it included people who used to live next door came to the party. The Sullivans? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Mrs. Sullivan said to me, it, it was the first time I was drinking alcohol with my friend, with my parents' friends. Right. So it was like, you know, I was in my twenties or whatnot. She pulled me aside and she said, 
Now that we're able to talk about these things, how old do you think you were when I first had to stop you from going after my my son in a sexual way? And I was stunned that she was saying this. But I said, well, I do remember you catching us when we were five down in your basement. I said to her son, wouldn't it be funny if we took off all our clothes and ran around the basement listening to Walt Disney's Cinderella record? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the mice singing, Cinderella, Cinderella. Um, and she caught us. And that was a very, very shameful moment as well, right? Uh, but so, so years later, I'm at the 40th wedding anniversary of my folks and she comes up to me she's like how old do you think you were when i first had to stop you from doing that sort of thing i said five and remembered that incident she said no one she was like you were trying to get my son's diapers off when you were both (laughs) still in diapers Uh, so it's really funny i mean when people talk about Kids' sexuality, you know, uh, like like for example, uh, this whole "don't say gay" thing. Um, some kids are completely oblivious and you know aren't putting the pieces together. They they they, they might have you know they might grow up into be being people with lower libidos or what or whatnot or just not be able to access that at that time. But then other kids, I think, are very aware of it on some level and and are aware you know hearing things like don't say gay is is going to be traumatic for kids like that you know yeah 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 did her son turn out to be gay (laughs) no no in fact um uh i uh, another kind of like a person who became a little bit like off the grid like you know out in nature you know might be a park ranger somewhere or something like that and Mm. i think about that all the time you know that's another thing i heard you and uh daniele bellelli talking about on his podcast was this fantasy of leaving a lot of this society behind and, you know, finding a bunch of friends and buying a big plot of land and trying to live a little bit more communally and whatnot. Um, I think about that because things are just so crazy. And, and there's this, there's talk about stories. There's this part of me that wants to escape, you know, move to another country or move to the wilderness or, or something like this. And, there's another part of me that's like, that's that story is is just a fantasy and probably wouldn't solve a lot of the things that are making you want to do that. But it's hard to know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there there are stories embedded within stories like Russian dolls. Right. So it might solve your personal conundrum but it's not solving the conundrum of your society or your family or your friends or yeah it's yeah it's yeah we might find uh you know a piece of wood to grab onto when the ship sinks but the ship's still going down yeah very strange 
Hey, Kevin, this you're great. I really enjoy hanging out with you. Yeah, um, me too. I, I, have we ever been in the same room together or has it always been through a computer? It, it's always been through a computer because you've done Risk Live before, but I think it was in Los Angeles and I wasn't there. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, next time I'm in New York, I'll drop you a line. It would be great to, to just breathe the same same air as long as covid isn't happening <laughs> indeed indeed <laughs> thank you for doing this man oh thank you he said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground